In today's episode, we discuss the gag-inducing food known as Brussels sprouts, and we ponder the reason why hurricanes get graded and kids at school do not. Also, we will talk about the unconditional love of God. It may include much more than you realize. All this and much more on today's episode of Talks with Josh. Let's get into it. Well, it's good to be back. As most of you, I'm sure, know, Florida got just absolutely devastated by Hurricane Ian a couple weeks ago. And uh, thankfully, my family and our home are just fine. But I've got friends in the Venice and Northport area that uh, really had a lot of damage uh, to their homes and to their vehicles. And um, just I know other families as well that have lost their homes and lost possessions. And uh, so it's it's been quite uh, quite the journey for them, and um, I'm, it's been remarkable though to see uh, different ministries and different organizations mobilize together and uh, just help to rebuild and bring hope and bring supplies and food to families that are in so desperate need. And uh, so that that work continues, and um, it's it's actually just being a, it's been a blessing just to be a part of that. And so uh, if this is your first time listening today, welcome. I want to encourage you to subscribe. Uh, Whatever platform you listen on, go ahead and follow and subscribe so you don't miss an episode. And also, if you have topics or questions, I want to encourage you to leave a voicemail. There's many things that are not on my radar that uh, would help me out for future episodes. If you really like what you're hearing and this encourages you and challenges you, I want to ask you to consider to become a monthly partner for as little as a dollar a month. And all of those details are in the show notes below. All right, with that out of the way, just like we always do, we're going to be talking about food. And today I'm going to be talking about a food that just the mere thought of it um, invokes a gag reflex in the back of my throat. And um, that food is called Brussels sprouts. And I have a little article here. We're going to talk about Brussels sprouts for a little bit. Um, I cannot pronounce the scientific <laughs> terminology, but it's actually a form of cabbage, which makes total sense because I just despise cabbage. If it's in if it's in coleslaw, and it's done really, really, really well, I can take it. But just like picking up some cabbage and eating it, no thanks. So it's a form of cabbage belonging to the mustard family. It's widely grown in Europe and North America. It's known for its edible buds called sprouts. It's like these little, you know, little balls. They're kind of like little balls and you can put spices on them and bake them and all of those types of things. Uh, Brussels sprouts usually are eaten cooked and the small young sprouts have a more delicate flavor than older ones. It's a good source of dietary fiber, folic acid, manganese, vitamins A, C, and K, and all that's well and good. But I can get my vitamins elsewhere. I I can take a a one-a-day vitamin and uh, avoid Brussels sprouts altogether. And my wife loves them. I mean, she'll she'll throw a whole whole mess of Brussels sprouts on a baking sheet, throw it in the oven, put spices, all that stuff on it, and good for her. That that's great. 
Now, lest you think that I'm, I have a total aversion to vegetables. It's it's just not true. I, I like I like broccoli actually, green beans, different things. I just Brussels sprouts to me. Just there's something. I guess it's kind of like it tastes. It tastes like where it c- comes from. You, you know what I mean? Like it tastes like the earth. <laughs> it tastes like. It tastes like a plant, and I don't know how to really describe that. There's just something there that I just can't take. So if you if you enjoy Brussels sprouts, by all means, continue to eat them, continue to enjoy them. Uh, but for, as for me, I will not. All right, let's get into our first topic and our trifecta of topics. We're going to be talking about something called mastery-based learning, and it's in connection to our school system and our nation Something that's kind of been in the works in development for the past decade or so, uh, it's gaining a lot more traction, and we know that our school systems are in trouble. It doesn't. You don't need to be a prophet or a rocket scientist to see that. You don't need to have a degree or a PhD in education to understand that our lack of education in our school system is alarming. And what's being taught, or rather the lack of what's being taught, is uh, alarming as well, uh, just based on surveys of Gen Z and uh, just just basic facts about history, geography, mathematics, you name it. The, you know, what used to be uh, reading, writing, arithmetic, and just very uh, foundational things in school have now been replaced by woke ideology and uh, gender studies and just all of the the liberal leftist agenda being pushed into schools. So already what kids are learning at school is they're so ill-equipped for life itself that uh, it's 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 alarming, which is why my children are homeschooled <laughs> and I highly advocate for that. So now, again, this has been in the works for a while, but but now more and more school systems and more and more education systems are doing away with letter grades. So you take a test over a particular uh, amount of material, you get a grade, you get an A, you get a B, you get a C, or you fail it, and there's a standard there. So many education systems are wanting to do away with the grading system. They already have. And mastery-based learning has effectively replaced that. Now, the idea here is is that mastery-based learning is that a student will learn the material however long it takes at their own pace uh, until the teacher or the instructor deems that they have mastered the material, whatever that looks like. And they might say that there's different uh, benchmarks in place and expectations and all of that, but it's, it's a lot of mumbo-jumbo here. And I think one of the, the big things here, I'm, I've got an article here from the University of Texas. To some of the, They outline the, the pros and cons of it. Uh, I like this definition of it. Competency-based education or mastery-based learning, same thing, in short, focus on mastery of content, 
not on how long it takes to learn it. For example, a student may master a subject in one month during a four-month semester, whereas another student may not master the subject by the end of the semester. Competency-based programs may seem ideal for working nurses enrolled in online college courses. These students can truly work at their own pace, taking less time and spending less money to earn their degrees. And then they outline some cons with it. Um, it can be a problem for students in ways that have nothing to do with how much they learn. And so a lot of these systems or these uh, schools that are implementing this, they lack accreditation, which means if you want to go on to college, then that's very difficult. And uh, there's just a lot of issues with it. We have an, another uh, article, or rather kind of a handout, from Connecticut's official state website. Just kind of an overview, as they call it, the 10 principles of mastery-based learning. And uh, what's very interesting here is that, uh, number six here, they say that academic proce- progress and achievement are monitored and reported separately from work habits, character traits, and behaviors such as attendance and class participation, which are also monitored and reported. So basically what they're saying is is that they're making a distinction between academic progress and students actually showing up for class and participating in class. I thought the last time I checked, most of your grade is attendance. I remember many classes in college, you know, 70% of my grade would just being there. And now that is being taken out of the equation, also class participation. And those things are no longer linked to the student's academic progress and achievement. It's also not linked to their own, to their work habits, which that kind of boils down to work ethic, discipline, all of those different types of things. And so the whole idea here is at the end of the day, it's just yet another way that we are removing any kind of standard, any kind of accountability, any kind of consequence to laziness, to rebellion. I just want, I don't want to go to class. So I'm not going to go today. That's okay, Johnny. That doesn't affect your academic progress. I mean, that's really what this is saying. And there's 10 of these uh, principles here that are outlined. But basically, if you, if you read between the lines, if you boil it all down, our education system, our, schools, our, our whole school system as a whole in the nation, is rather than uh, pulling the students up and really making them reach a standard and saying, hey, there's consequences if you don't study for a test or you don't understand this material. Saying, oh, it's okay. You can take however long you need to learn it. That just, that really um, fosters entitlement. We already have issues with entitlement. It fosters laziness and a host of other things. But rather than our education system being a standard or being something that the students are benefiting from, uh, it's catering to them instead. 
and saying you don't you don't need grades. And really, at the end of the day, it, it's this idea of we don't. It's this woke idea of we don't need any standards. We don't consequences aren't a big deal. You shouldn't have to face consequences for your actions. At least not if you're liberal. You shouldn't. Now, the conservative, if you're conservative or you hold to traditional values, then by all means, uh, if you do something that we don't like, then there will be consequences. And uh, it's really sad, actually, uh, as, as I've gotten into the subject a bit more, just to see how it's actually hurting students rather than helping them. It also brought up another question. I was talking to uh, someone at the ministry I work with, and uh, he's actually the reason that I got this this whole bit for the podcast, as he's like, you know what? Because we were talking about Hurricane Ian. He's like, you know what? Hurricanes get graded, but students don't. <laughs> I was like, you know what? You're right. You know, st- hurricanes start forming, and uh, and they're like, you know, you know, meteorologists are like, hey, you're you're a tropical storm, and if you reach this. If you reach this benchmark of winds, then we're going to grade you at a category one. And, you know, the hurricane could be like, you know what? I don't want to do that. I want to identify as a tropical storm, even though I'm a category five. You know, that this is the, it sounds foolish, but this is actually really kind of the way that our, our culture thinks nowadays, that we can just identify as anything. And uh, we're kind of on another topic already, <laughs> but... Uh, you know, imagine if a hurricane's like, you know what, I'm non-binary, I don't have any wind or rain, I'm just, I just kind of float around, I don't do anything. I mean, that's just foolishness. But going back to the beginning of this this topic, we've, we already know that our education system, even with a grading system in place, is already in trouble. My personal opinion is, is that the reason that they're going after this approach is that grading system is clearly not working. Students are failing tests. Students are not understanding the material, not because the standard is wrong, but because the way the material is being presented or what's being presented or the students themselves not being engaged in the classroom, that's the issue. But true to form, rather than deal with the root issue, it's much easier just to try to come up with another Band-Aid to put over the gaping wound known as our education system. You know, it's like, it's like trying to put a little uh, Spider-Man Band-Aid over a gaping uh, bullet wound and say, that's good, we're fine, there's nothing wrong here, move along. And, um, and so one of the, the big arguments that proponents of mastery-based learning uh, propose is like we you know we want to help students be prepared for the real world you know I'm like well you're actually doing the opposite because you're 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 infusing this this entitled mindset into students that it, oh, I don't really have to whatever long it takes uh, it doesn't really matter and you go into a job interview or you go into a particular field and you might only get one shot to really be able to prepare and meet that benchmark. 
or you're or you get a, a work a job evaluation and you're going to be graded on your performance what about that you know there's this again it comes back to this whole idea of there are standards and from not just spiritually but educationally and morally and spiritually and everything we just want to erase every line or every quote unquote box or you know hindrance to our own ideas and our own desires as what as whatever life looks like we just want all we want everything just to be our way and um you know it's the bible's clear lawlessness will increase and uh this is just yet another example of that all right let's get to our second topic and our trifecta of topics and we're going to be talking about music today and more specifically i thought it would be fun to talk a little bit about Ludwig van Beethoven or von Beethoven, depending on uh, how you want to pronounce that. And uh, if you're not that into classical music, you should be. And uh, I know that was blunt, but uh, you, you, classical music is just rich and there's there's just so much there. I, I can't even begin to delve into it. But if you've heard the Moonlight Sonata, that was Beethoven. Also, Beethoven's Fifth Symphony. Bum, 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 bum. Bum, 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 bum. That's Beethoven. Uh, used in countless commercials and movies, and everyone knows that. In fact, uh, in several um, uh, courses, if you're learning about music, uh, the beginning of that symphony is so compelling you can literally just do the rhythm you know you could just <laughs> clap the rhythm and people are like, oh that sounds like beethoven's fifth just because the rhythm itself even without the melody uh, is so uh, recognizable but I, I thought it'd be fun to talk about beethoven for a little bit and just some interesting facts that uh, you might not have heard before and uh, so we'll start off with this. This is interesting because I don't remember when, but there was supposedly a very uh, legit uh, study that was done that showed that musicians were really good at math. And it always confused me because uh, obviously I'm a musician. I've been doing music since the age of nine, but I am atrocious at math. Uh, I barely made it through algebra one and two in high school. I did. I, I tried to avoid math like the plague in college. I did the very least amount that I could do, could get away with. That I, you know, obviously I had to do some math to get my degree, but uh, but I avoided all of the higher math. <laughs> and so I was when I when I found this fact, it says uh, Beethoven was bad at math. I was like, thank you. I appreciate this this fact. Um, that you can be a musician and also be bad at math. Um, it says, having left school at age 11 to help with household income, Beethoven never learned how to multiply or divide. That's pretty bad. I mean, I, I'm, I'm not that great at math, but I can at least multiply or divide. To his last day, if he had to multiply, say, 60 times 52, he'd lay out 60 52 times and then add them up. Great musician, but obviously very bad at math. 
supposedly on his first visit to Vienna, 17-year-old Ludwig von Beethoven performed for Mozart. I think everyone's heard of Mozart. Mozart, then the greatest composer in Vienna, was generally unimpressed with other musicians. I mean, it's probably because he was so incredibly awesome. Being so far ahead of his peers in talent and accomplishments, no one really knows what happened in the recital. But Mozart allegedly walked out of the room saying, keep your eye on him. Someday he'll give the world something to talk about. And indeed, he did. Uh, Beethoven was known for improvisation. And, um, and so that was something somewhat unusual in that day where the, the composer would get up and improvise. Usually they would play their works note for note, but Beethoven would improvise and uh, kind of a very, very, very early uh, forerunner for jazz. Uh, Ludwig von Beethoven learned from Franz Joseph Haydn, uh, also known as the father of the symphony. Beethoven pioneered composition for piano. Not a lot of people know this. That uh, Now, Beethoven, in his day, uh, his predecessors had, had composed for harpsichord. You know, we had Bach, and he loved Bach, and uh, Mozart, and things like that. But Beethoven decided he would focus his efforts on the piano, which was fairly new. It was a fairly new instrument. Uh, really, no one had written for, for that yet. And uh, so he went after it, and we've got, you know, his Moonlight Sonata. We've got his uh, Pathetique uh, Sonata. We've got a, a ton of other works uh, that he wrote for piano. Beethoven was sickly throughout his life. He suffered from deafness and uh, rheumatic fever and skin disorders and infections and all of that. And uh, he unfortunately died fairly early. And uh, but this is probably the one of the most incredible facts about Beethoven is that uh, he went totally deaf at the age of 27. Uh, he says he began to hear constant buzzing at age 27, and uh, basically he could no longer play the piano, but he continued to compose. And so what uh, someone did is they. They sawed off the legs of his piano and laid the, so that the piano laid directly on the floor, had contact with the floor. And he was able to put his ear to the floor and plunk out different notes or different melodies and, and hear some of the vibrations. What's crazy to me is that Beethoven write, wrote some of his best work when he was deaf. Now, part of this is because it wasn't just that, but he also had perfect pitch. And so he could hear exactly what he wanted in his mind and then write it out. Uh, just incredible, uh, incredible uh, fact there. One of his symphonies was dedicated to Napoleon Bonaparte. <laughs> um, never quit his day job. He worked a day job while he, uh, and also gave piano lessons while he was writing his music. A lot of composers didn't have to have a day job. Beethoven did. And uh, Beethoven died during a thunderstorm. And tragically, his life ended at a very early age, around 56. And um, so those are just some interesting facts about Beethoven. And uh, I'll probably do more of these where I'll take some famous composers and just kind of give some uh, interesting tidbits about their life and hopefully generate some interest in classical music. So 
my challenge to you, uh, go on Spotify, Apple Music, whatever streaming platform you listen to, and just type in Beethoven and enjoy. Uh, there's symphonies, there's uh, sonatas for the piano, there's string stuff, all kinds of just incredible music that he wrote. And um, so have fun with that. So for our third and final topic in our trifecta of topics, we're going to be talking about a subject that is preached on millions of times, sung about, written about, and I think is a phrase that is so used that I think we have a certain angle of it or a certain side of it, which is true, that we are familiar with. But because it's so used and because it's so familiar, we tend to put it to the side or tend to uh, think that we know what it means. And that is the unconditional love of God. And um, I'm sure if you're a believer in Jesus, or even if you're not, I'm sure you've probably heard this phrase through media or through people you know, God's unconditional love. Now, it's a true statement, so I'm not slamming the, the statement or the wording at all. The dictionary defines unconditional as having no conditions and being unlimited, absolute, unqualified. In other words, it is, it is a very limiting word to describe a limitless truth. I mean, we can't really define the love of God and, and really put it into a box because it's God is love. And so if you were to try to define love, and there are definitions, there are parameters to it, but God himself is love. And I think as you, I think we're continuing to discover the love of God. Uh, as as we continue to mature and this walk with him. But we're going to be talking about the unconditional love of God. And I was thinking about this phrase the other day, and a, an aspect of it struck me that really hadn't struck me before. And, and uh, I, I think it'll, hopefully, it'll get you thinking as well about a different aspect of it that maybe you haven't thought of before. You know, in Ephesians 3.18, Paul prays that we might have strength to comprehend how deep, wide, long, etc. is the love of God. And so he, there's this apostolic prayer, beautiful prayer in Ephesians 3.18. Paul says, I want you to have strength to be able to just get a somewhat of a grasp on how incredible the love of God is. In a previous episode, we talked about the fact that the love of God actually goes beyond our knowledge, our understanding. It, it actually goes beyond all of that. Um, and so I was driving the other day, I began to think about this phrase. What does it really mean? I thought. I've heard it a million times, but there was something new that started to reveal itself. You know, the majority of the time, this phrase is used in relationship to someone who has sinned or messed up, etc., and we exclaim, thank you, Lord, for your unconditional love for me. It doesn't hinge on my performance or my works. Now, I would totally agree with this. The Bible is, is very clear that God's love 
is not linked or doesn't predicate itself on my performance, on my obedience, on anything that I do. Romans 5.8 is a great text to illustrate this. You know, while I was still a sinner, God demonstrated his love for me. I'm paraphrasing. Romans 8.35-39, through 39, what can separate me from the love of God? And so there are these truths that are glorious and, and absolutely essential. And in, in 1 John it says that we're, we're exhorted to behold the love that the Father has given us. We are exhorted to meditate and go deep in the love of God. And it's easy to sin and mess up or fail or whatever word you want to use and say, Lord, thank you for your unconditional love. And we say that because we're basically saying, Lord, you still love me because it's not connected to what I just did or what I just said or what I just thought. And it's true. His love for us was way before we could even know what that meant. And so there are many verses throughout Scripture that reiterate there's truth. God's love, it's not connected to circumstances. It's not related to how much I achieve in this life. It's not in my own merit. It's not that I deserve his love. We are tied and anchored to a love that isn't tied to our own performance. You know, in Deuteronomy 7, it, it really kind of brings it home here. In Israel, uh, I'm sorry, in, in Deuteronomy 7, God said of Israel, I love you because I love you. Now, now think about that statement for just a minute. If you take a step back, that's not really an answer. I mean, from a human perspective, we go, you know, kids are always like, well, why, <laughs> daddy, why, why can't I run into the street? Well, because I said so. And they're like, but why'd you say so? What do you mean? And God's saying, look, I love you because I love you. He's basically saying the same thing twice, but that's reason enough. In other words, God's saying, I love you because of me. I don't love you because of you. I love you because of me. Now, this is clearly not a mortal love. In other words, this is not a love that is uh, that we're used to, or that we that's that's human. Um, now, Jesus demonstrated, obviously, demonstrated this love, the supernatural love, through the cross and through his sacrifice. And that's what Romans 5.8 talks about. He says it, it demonstrated his love, showing, hey, this is the way that I love you. And, and so we usually love others because of what they do or how they treat us. Our love fluctuates towards others based on what they do and how they treat us. It's fairly easy to believe God's love toward me while I make when I make choices or create circumstances uh, through my own willful desires and sin, etc. It's easy to believe it's unconditional because really at the root of it, I'm selfish. It's that 
entitled, selfish, or, you know, yeah, Lord, you love me. It's unconditional. Praise God. And I'm not even talking about willful sin. I'm just saying it's, it's way easier to believe God's love for me when I'm the one creating the circumstances and I'm the one making the choices. And that's where I want to propose a different angle to this that may maybe you've never thought of before. So it's fairly easy. This is a kind of a, a fairly easy to believe that now we're all going to struggle from we're all going to struggle many many times to really believing the love of God or having confidence in his love when we sin and when we stumble. I'm not saying it's easy or it's just that is you know emotionally easy all the time but it's definitely easier than what we're, what I'm going to talk about next however you know if you truly believe God's love is unconditional that is unattached to circumstances to choices that it's totally that his love is totally based on him and him alone that just like Deuteronomy 7 says, God said to Israel, and really he's saying it to, you know, we're grafted into, into that. He's saying to us, I love you because I love you. He loves because he loves. That's who he is. If we really believe that, then I think the big question here, so lean into this, the big question is, then what about the choices that he makes and the circumstances that he creates that we deem unfavorable or even offensive to our own mind. This is going back to the beginning of this topic. I think many, many, many Christians were told something in church, were told something in a sermon. And it's truth, but the problem is, is that truth has many facets and layers and depths to it, especially when it comes to the attributes of God. There's tension there. There's, uh, it's not just a, 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 a one-dimensional di- one issue. It could be two, it could be three, it could be four, it could be <laughs> so many different angles and layers to it. And so we 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 sit in church and we go, thank you, Lord, for your unconditional love. The pastor's preaching, God loves you no matter what you do, and it's unconditional, and et cetera, et cetera. And all of this is true. The problem is, is that most Christians aren't in the Bible, are not in the Word of God for themselves during the week. They're just trying to survive or trying to live off of whatever the pastor is already pre-digested. You know, it's already he's already pre-digested the word, he's giving it to the people. And that's not how it was ne- it was never meant to be like that. And uh and so as a result, many Christians theology is very one-dimensional. There it's there's truth to it, but there's not it's kind of like a uh you know, I, I a shallow, a really, really, really shallow body of water. It might be very, very wide and very, very long, but it's very shallow. There might be a lot of information, but not that much depth in terms of how the information is perceived or understood. 
So going back to this question, if you really believe, if you, it's really very logical. If you really believe and you say that God's love is unconditional and that it's not attached to anything, anyone, circumstances, choices, you know, Romans 8.35, praise God, what can separate us from the love of God? Then by that same reasoning, you have to submit underneath the truth that God is going to create circumstances and make choices that seem uh, unfavorable, that seem offensive, that seem unloving to us. But if we, by the grace of God, if we can truly embrace and submit and understand that his love is totally disconnected. Let me rephrase that. God will God will show his love through circumstances, absolutely. Maybe you get a $500 check in the mail and God is just, you're reminded of his love for you. But God didn't send you a $500 check to prove that he loves you. God did that to so that you would be reminded of it. There's a difference. And so, um, it, it's, it's very interesting. Why is it that we suddenly start questioning if God loves us when suffering, trials, and other circumstances enter our lives? If we are honest, I believe it's because when it comes to God relating to us, we want to put conditions on it that best suit our preference. So on, on one side, it's really double talk or double speak. On one side of our mouth, we say, God, thank you for your unconditional love. But on the other side of our mouth, we're saying, God, the way that you relate towards me, how, you're, how you relate towards me, I, I still want to have conditions on it. And that's just not how it works. And uh, it's easy to proclaim God's love and we are the ones that have messed up but quite another to declare his that his love is still fierce towards us even when it seems like everything is falling apart i'm reminded you know earlier in the in the episode we talked about hurricane ian and i read an article uh, from a pastor that lived on sanibel island and his um entire home was destroyed Lost everything. Everything that he said that everything that he owned was in the back of his pickup truck. And through this article, it was so refreshing and so provoking and so challenging. Basically, the long and short of it is, he's like, people were asking, "How? Do, why are you so joyful? Why are you so happy?" And basically, he was like, he he might not have said this, but it was clear from the article, from what he said, it was clear that he was still confident that God loved him because he had come to grips with the truth that God's love is, is unconditional and it goes both ways. It's unconditional in terms of the choices that we make, but it's also unconditional in regards to what God decides to do that we don't understand. And that's really, at the end of the day, it's surrendering under his lordship once again and saying, God, 
you're God and I'm not. And I'm reminded of in the book of Hebrews, in Hebrews uh, 11, it talks about faith and it talks about discipline. It says, God disciplines those whom he loves. And then it goes on to say that all discipline for the moment is painful. See, we don't want to equate love and pain together. Our Hollywoodized, media-saturated church culture, we think pain and love have very little, I mean, unless you're breaking up with someone and it's painful, and, and but then you fall in love again. And, but somehow those two things can't really coexist. Love is supposed to be just this happy thing all the time and there's no pain in it or there's no uh, uh, conf- uh, con- uh, misunderstanding or anything like that. And I, I think part of this or a big part of this is the very simple fact that the whole concept of love not just in our culture, but in our, but in our uh, Christian culture, is uh, sadly, we go back to the, the shallow thing again, so shallow and so lacking. Love is just simply tolerating whoever, whatever, whenever. Literally, that's really what love is. Well, yeah, you want to be gay, you want to be lesbian. I love you anyway. There's no standard, there's no any kind of discipline, there's no consequences, there's nothing. And um, and so when we talk about the unconditional love of God, in order to really, I, I feel, to really embrace that truth fully, as much as possible, we have to take both, we have to take it all. We have to understand that it isn't contingent on even God's choices, the circumstances that he creates, the things that we don't understand at times, that at the end of the day, God's saying, oh, look, I love you. I always, I always will love you regardless of what your life looks like here on earth. Regardless of the discipline that I desire to bring your way in order to conform you to my image, I love you because I love you. Deuteronomy 7. And I think looking at Israel is a prime example. You know, you read through the Old Testament and you hear God's like, all right, you guys are back at it again. You're sacrificing to idols. You're disobedient. And I'm going to send a army and you're going to go into exile for quite a while and be persecuted and suffer and all that kind of stuff. But I do love you. I love you because I love you. And Israel's like, you know, and they go, how have you loved us? That was the big indictment uh, against God. And God goes, you don't get it. Love, my love, my discipline, everything that I do. You know, it's easy to say God is love when it's, when we get warm fuzzies, you know, we listen to the worship song about God's love, which I love those. I absolutely love them. We get warm fuzzies, maybe a few tears run down our cheeks, and we 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 were kind of floating on cloud nine from the worship service. It's easy to 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 feel that. Well, God, thank you that you're love. But if we really believe God is love, 
then everything that he does is driven by love. That includes discipline. That includes his punitive judgments, his temporal judgments, and ultimately, ultimately, the final judgment that he brings at the end of the age um, is really driven by love, honestly. And so I, the Lord was reminding me of this. And uh, I, I, I was like, thank you. Because the more, and I would encourage you to meditate on this truth and, and say, God, help me to um, submit under this and to believe that you love me because you love me. And I think part of it too is that, and we go back to Ephesians it's a love that goes beyond knowledge. And so in order to really in order to really grasp or really get this, you you have to first of all realize that you can't in and of your own understanding. Because it goes beyond understanding, it goes beyond your own knowledge. But I think a good starting point is coming to grips with the fact that the that God's love is truly unconditional. It truly is not attached to the things that enter into our lives that are bad, that are unfavorable, that are negative, that cause pain, that cause suffering. It has nothing to do with whether God loves us or not. And really coming to grips with that and going deep in that truth. Well, thank you for listening to today's episode. It's good to be back with you all. Again, if you are a first-time listener, I want to encourage you to please subscribe and share. Let people know about this podcast. And uh, I look forward to doing more content, talking about more issues. Until next time.